Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Uh, I, saw, uh, I saw a picture this week that I've never seen before. It was on a, on a Christian radio program, and you say, I just see a, a picture on a radio program. Well, it was, it was recorded, and it was on the Internet. And they showed a picture from the Spanish Civil War during a period called the Red Terror when the uh, Republicans, communists, uh, had, uh, they found a statue of Jesus Christ, tall statue, and to further their cause, they decided to display and have a public execution of Christ. And so in the picture you see they've surrounded the statue and they've got all their rifles pointed up at the air ready to put him to death at the firing squad. And I saw this picture, I wondered why? There's a war going on. Why would a group of volunteers fighting in a war take the time to make a statement like this? To take time out of uh, an existential threat to these people in order to execute a statue of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is simple. They hate him. They hated him in 1936. They hated him in 33 AD. And people hate the Lord Jesus today. And in that program, there was a, a question asked about all of the outrage in the world right now. Right, there's so much anger and so much fury. Really, it's, it's incredible. And so the radio host asked the question. He said, who are they angry at? What, are, what is everyone so furious about? And that's an important question because if you don't understand what has people so angry and where that anger is directed... You're not going under, to understand the goal. You're not going to understand what is uh, being aimed at, what they're aiming to do. You're, you're not going to understand what's going on. And what you need to realize is that all of the outrage in the world today over things like LGBTQ laws, abortion laws, even the extent and authority of the government, maybe especially that, all of it has little to do with laws and rights and science at all. At its most fundamental level, it is an attempt to remove God as the great decider. The, the center of this matter is that, that kind of self worshiping cry that just comes naturally from the human heart screaming nobody will tell me what to do no one's gonna tell me what to be no one's gonna tell me what's right and what's wrong I decide it gets amplified to the point where even nature itself must be subjected to man's twisted, evil, unnatural desires. And people seek dominion over the creation order itself. Now I know in the garden that mankind was given dominion over creation, but this goes further than that. People seek dominion over what God has instituted. Right? I will decide what is a man. And what is a woman? Not you. I will decide when my life is over. I will decide when life begins and what life is worthy of life. And no one is going to tell me otherwise. It's just like it was in the time of Isaiah. People say, I am and there is none beside me. And all of it is a, is a fist shaking at the heavens against God. That's why in the French Revolution, the first thing they did was kill all the priests and Christians. That's why Stalin did the same. It's why Mao did the same in China. It's why Nero did the same in ancient Rome. It's why they executed Christ. It's why in the time of judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's why they ridiculed Lot in Sodom. Who made you a judge over us? It's all a manifestation of hatred towards God because God stands in the way. And so it's not right versus left. 
or conservative versus liberal or this economic system versus that economic system. It's not rural or urban or rich or poor or however else you want to frame it. It is light versus darkness, which is so important to understand because if you don't understand this, you're not going to be able to deal with the darkness that you see because darkness isn't expelled with a legal victory or a change in political colors or better education or improved standards of living. Darkness is only expelled one way, by the light. And if you want to shine light in the world, if you're concerned about all of the evil that's happening around you and it is everywhere, then you must believe that Jesus Christ is truly our only hope and the only way that he is the light of the world and then go preaching the gospel which is the power of God which does deliver from evil and which alone can expel the darkness and open the minds of those who are blind and free the captives from their sinful slavery. You have to believe without reservation that this gospel and its preaching is the only hope for an evil God-defying world. And now at this point, you probably going, probably think I'm going to preach on how preaching the gospel will fix the world around you. And if you want to leave a better world for your children, you should be out there sharing what Christ has done. This is absolutely true. Christ's and his gospel is the only cure for the world around us. And it's true, this is what we ought to be about and give our lives to. But the risk in hearing this is that we have a tendency to start to think, well, the gospel is for people who are out there. But if you think that the gospel is just for people out there, the irony is it will never be a strong enough motivation for you to give your life away to Christ and suffer all for him to take it to them. So my concern is for us. My concern is that the evil that's out there is also in here, in me and in you. This is so easy. It's so easy in this polarized world to always say the problem is there, right? The problem is this group or that group. It's not. That's what we always say, right? It's someone else. Trouble in the world, it's always because of someone else. Trouble in the family, it's because of everyone but me. Trouble in my own life, it's always because of somebody else, and it's always someone else. Hell is full of someone else. We're like Adam in the garden. Do you remember what Adam said when he was confronted by God? He said, God, I would not have sinned had it not been for this woman that you gave me. You understand what he's saying? God, you're upset about this. Didn't you give me this woman? You might as well blame yourself for what's happening here. It's always someone else. We are so much like our first father and so far off from being like Christ. We have such high opinions of ourselves and such low opinions of God. But listen, if we, are, if we are ever going to love God, if we're ever going to humble ourselves, if we're ever going to be amazed at the gospel so that we carry it on our lips and cherish it in our hearts, I mean, we sing amazing grace and we're hardly amazed at all. We have to stop saying someone else and start saying it was me. The greatest problem I ever faced is me. The greatest problem you ever face is the person who looks back in you when you look into the mirror. Until you realize that, You'll never love the gospel more than your own life. You'll never love the glory of God even remotely as we ought to. And we will be useless to be salt and light in this fallen hellish world until we understand and go deeper into what God has done for us in Christ. So let's take a look in our Bibles now to the greatest paragraph in it. And you say, I think, I thought all the Bible was great. Look, if you're lying on your deathbed and you have two minutes left to live and you want something to be read to you from the Bible, are you going to pick the first seven chapters of the book of Chronicles? Or are you going to pick a book out of Romans? 
chapter, it's not all the same. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, this morning Your Son and what He has done for us. Help us, Lord, to see and to believe your testimony about us, Lord, your testimony against us. Not so that we might fall into despair, but so that we might love your Son and love you and love your gospel and love what you have done for us. Lord, it is no small thing that you have declared us righteous in your sight. And I pray that your Spirit would convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and would preach to our hearts, Lord, as your Word preaches to our ears. It's to you we look. We pray for help. I pray for help. Amen. I want you to imagine that you're sitting at home, it's in the evening, you're watching the television, your favorite sports game, whatever it is, maybe it's a playoffs, but you're sitting there, you're watching it, you're enjoying it, but then all of a sudden, there on the screen flashes breaking news, right? We interrupt your program to bring you this, this news, and, 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 uh, and then the camera goes to a, a scientist, a man, a lab coat, you know, he comes on, he says, he says we found it. We have finally found a cure for cancer. We have it. No one's going to die from this disease anymore. And you're watching the game. You see this interrupted. What are you going to do? You're going to say, that's really good news. You're going to call your, 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 your wife or your, your husband in from the other room. You're going to say, hey, come, you, you've got to see this. Look, they found a cure for this disease. This is wonderful. He's going to go on and talk about it. we work for, for weeks and months and it's paid off every kind of cancer. doesn't matter how far along it is. Cured. And you're going to think and you're going to agree. This is really good news. But as the breaking news broadcast continues to interrupt the playoff game that is happening, what's going to happen? Five minutes, ten minutes will go by and eventually you're going to say to yourself, Maybe not out loud, maybe out loud. It's about time we got back to the game, I think. This is really good news. But I want to know who's going into the next game of the playoffs. And you agree that it's good news. It's good news for other people. Rewind. Let's play it again. You're in a hospital bed, you're dying. Your body has been ravished by the disease and you have months left to live. To take your mind off of things, you're watching the sports game. And then, in the middle of the game, flashes across the screen, breaking news. And it, 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 it says, uh, we, we interrupt this broadcast to, to bring you this breaking news. And then it, it cuts to the same guy in the same coat, same news. And he says, we have found a cure for cancer. 
Nobody's going to die from this disease anymore. It doesn't matter what type. It doesn't matter how far advanced. We have a cure. We have 10,000 units available, millions more on the way. They'll be in, in people's hands by the end of the week. You're lying in the hospital bed. What are you going to say? You're going to say, this is good news. And with every ounce of strength that you have left, you are going to rejoice with all of it. You're going to call the nurses in. You're going to start calling people in your family. You're going to tell them, turn on the television. You've got to see what they found. And you are going to spend the rest of your life remembering the day when you heard good news. My fear for us, is that we think and live as though we're sitting in the seat watching the game. And we don't realize that we were far further along in sickness and in death when the good news came to us. Until you realize these things, you will never love the gospel as you ought. Because the good news addresses two things. The two banes of human existence, sin and death, corruption and decay. And the reason we don't rejoice and love the gospel as we ought is because we really don't believe that these things are true or that big of a deal. I mean, of course we don't think that we're sick, not terminally. I mean, death is hidden away. We don't, we don't think about it. Everyone expects to live forever. And so we ignore and we deny and we make every effort to erase death from our thinking. You know, I had a conversation with a man uh, about a year ago. He was in his late 70s. He had cancer. It was not good. And he was saying, I, I don't want to die. The conversation, I don't want to die. He's 79 years old. He said, all I want is to go to the doctor and come back and have the doctor say, cancer free. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, man, you are 80 years old. Even if the doctor says cancer-free, how long do you expect to live? Death is real. You can't hide away from everybody in this room will die. It's just a matter of time. And not only do we face death, we are evil. You heard that right. Human beings are evil. And I don't just mean the ones out there. I mean the ones in here. I mean the one up here. That's why we die. The Bible calls evil sin. Now, we've even sanitized the word sin so that it hardly churns the stomach. But evil, when we hear the word evil, we think, well, that's reserved for the, the, the most horde of criminals. And so the world around you and your own pride, it recoils at the thought of us actually being evil. Right? Being lumped in with the worst of the worst. How many of us really believe the Bible's testimony about us? That there is nothing good in you. That no one seeks God. There is no one righteous. Not even one. And by the way, these aren't my words. Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 7, you are evil. You know who he's talking to? He's not talking to the Pharisees in that passage. He's talking to good parents who give good things to their children and take care of them. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give good things to those who ask him? Elsewhere, Jesus says there is no one good but God. Uh, because of the endless conditioning that we have received, not only to ignore evil, but deny it and, and justify our bad deeds. Nobody seems to believe this. Uh, even Christians hardly seem to believe it. And because they don't believe it, the gospel has no grip on their lives. They find no motivation for it. The, the demands that Christ makes seem to be too much. We find no joy in them. The suffering's too great. And we start to grumble. Right? God is meddlesome, interfering with my life. But you need to know that you are wicked and that you do deserve to die. And I don't say this to humiliate us. I say this because it's true. And I want you to love God. And I want you to love what He's done for you. Because without believing this, you will never 
come to even the foothills of understanding the mountain of the gospel of Christ. You'll just continue to be like the person sitting in the chair wishing the game would come back on. If you need convinced that all have sinned, you don't really need to look any further than a child. Now, I have, I have three children. I love them dearly. But listen, nobody has to teach them how to sin. Nobody. You who are parents or work with children, let me ask you. Did you ever have to teach your children to lie? To lie to you? Did you ever, did you ever sit down your child and say, Hey, look, I know that sometimes you're going to see other people and they're going to have things that you want. And what you need to do when you see that is you need to go over there, push the kid down, and take it. Do you teach them to do No. Nobody teaches them to do that. They do it automatically. They do it on their own. It comes right out of the heart. Nobody has to teach a child to be cruel. Nobody has to teach a child to be, un, uh, to be selfish. Nobody has to teach a child to be unkind. And if you leave a child on their own without intervening, uh, if you're a parent, hours a day to try to, to correct these things, you will be left with a monster. And you know it. But it's not just in children. God gave ten commandments. Shall not commit adultery. You shall not have any idols. You shall not murder. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus amplified these things. He says, You have heard, you shall not murder. And everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry at his brother will be liable to the judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And everyone who says, you ever get angry at somebody? And when he says, you idiot, will be liable to the hell of fire. You think that that one outburst and those two words, in danger of hell forever, shall not commit adultery, Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust. Always do what you've said. Love your enemies. Matthew 5, 48. You say, how far is Jesus going to take this? Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to know the standard for entrance into the kingdom of God? Perfection. 100%. Everything right all the time. You say, Corey, no one's like this. It's exactly my point. And that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, you are evil. In our passage this morning, sin is to fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? It means that we were made to be just like God in all of his perfections all the time. To fall short of that means to be less than that. Sin is the falling short of being just like God is. And you know instinctively that nobody does. You don't need a Bible to know that this is true. Because there is not a single person in this room who would say, I'm perfect. You know you're not perfect. How do you know? Police aren't out to get you. You can see a policeman. You're not going to run away and hide. You know you've not broken the laws of the land. You say, well, society. Well, they don't, they don't know, and there are all kinds of things you do that society permits that you know are wrong. Why will nobody, unless something is, is wrong up here, why will nobody admit, why will nobody say or believe of themselves that they are perfect? The reason they don't, won't say it is because they don't believe it, and the reason they don't believe it is because they know it's not true. Everyone knows that they fall short of what they were meant and made to be. To do everything perfectly all the time. Never having your mind wander somewhere else. All things done to the glory of God. Never an idle word. This is the standard that the Scripture set. So when was the last time that you did everything perfectly? with right thoughts about God and perfect motives? I know the answer. Never. 
Which is why the Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, even our most, most righteous works are like filthy rags. I heard an example once of a leper. Imagine a leper covered with sores all over his body. And you go out into Frederick and you get the finest suit that money can buy. You take that suit and you come and you put it on the leper and you say, there, we have made him presentable. We've wrapped him in what looks good. He looks good. <coughs> it hasn't cured a thing, has it? Because even though you put him in the finest suit, it's only going to be a matter of time before the corruption of that man's body bleeds through the suit and the good suit becomes just as defiled as him, so much so that not a single person would even want to touch it. All of our good works, even the best of them, are like filthy rags. When we compare ourselves to Christ, how can it be anything but? I mean, imagine we have a scale of righteousness. I've used this example before, but imagine a scale of righteousness. And on one side, you have the absolute worst people that you know, or the worst people who have ever existed. And you put them over there. Now, think of the best people that you know in this world. And you put them on the other side. Where are you going to fit in this scale? Right, so you're comparing yourself to the worst of men, the best of mankind. Where do you fit? Maybe somewhere in the middle? Maybe, maybe right just to, just to this side of center? Maybe you think I'm pretty good and you put yourself up here. The entire scale changes when you add Jesus in. Right, so let's take the worst and the very best. Let's take Jesus and put Him on the scale. The best. Utter perfection. Never an evil thought. Perfect motivation, always doing the will of his Father. Now, where do you fit on the scale? In the middle? Wasn't even in the middle to begin with. Halfway to the worst? Once you add Jesus to the scale, the best of man and the worst of man are this close, and you cannot even distinguish them anymore one from the other. That's like me standing on this stage. Am I closer to the sun than you? It's so distant that it doesn't matter how high I rise in my good works and righteousness, it cannot compare even this close to Christ. Sin infects everything that we do. We've sinned more times than can be counted on a calculator. Send enough this morning to condemn yourself and everybody else in this world to hell over and over and over again. And I hope you start to see what I'm saying. We're not sinners because we sin. It goes much deeper than that. We sin because we are sinners. Jesus doesn't say you sin and so sin enters the heart. He says sin is in the heart and that's why it comes out pollutes everything we touch. It's like you have dirty hands. If you have dirty hands, what clean thing can you grab hold of and it still be clean? For anything to be clean, you must be cleaned. Because of that, because of our sin, you know what we deserve. When you read the news, you see what's going on in the world, it makes you cry out for justice, doesn't it? Right? Because you know what is right and you know what is wrong. And more than that, you know that those who do such things deserve to die. Where you stumble is confessing that those things are true for you. Never me. I would never do something like that. How do you know? How do you know that you would never do something like that? There are things that you said you would never do when you were a child that you did as a teenager. And there are things that as a teenager you said, I will never do that. And then as, as an adult, not only did you do them, but you enjoyed them. You don't know your heart. You, you don't know yourself. You don't know what you're capable of. I mean, all the time you, you see these experiments they, they, they do. I read about one the other day, and, and, a, and a man in an experiment in the 70s put something like a dozen people on a raft and, and let them go out for, for three months, and by the end of it, they were trying to murder each other. You read about ancient sieges in, in times past. The city is surrounded. All food is cut off. You know what the Bible says? 
It says, the most pristine among you, the woman so refined that she wouldn't allow her foot to touch the mud. In those times of distress, what's in the heart is brought out to the point where this woman would want to eat her own children. That's a testimony of the prophets of God against His people. The only reason why we haven't fallen further than we have is because God in His mercy has held us up. God has. You owe it to Him. You know what the reason why you're not as bad as the worst people that you know? You owe it to Him. He's preserved you. But the evil is in there and it flares up all the time. And, and given enough time, it starts to take hold. Given some more time, it starts to become a trophy. How many people boast about how they ripped somebody off in a deal? Or they boast about how many people they've slept with? Or they boast about how proud they are of themselves? Everyone knows what we deserve because of this. Romans 1.32 Everyone knows they deserve to die because of sin. They deserve to die. But it's suppressed. It's ignored. It's justified. It's denied. But it's there. I mean, death hangs over all of us. And it eats people alive. Death controls you. Certainly it controls your society far more than you realize. We got a glimpse of it just these last few years, didn't we? The controlling power of death. Last few years, a relatively small threat incited hysterical panic. And people lost their minds. Why? Because for the first time in their lives, they were confronted with the possibility of death. Their own death. Even if the chances of it happening were, were slim, they were real. And, and it sent the world into a kind of neurotic shock. They realized they might actually perish. Well, why is there such an aversion to death? It almost seems odd for, for me to say that. Why are people averse to death? You say, well, because they die. Yeah, but why? Why is that a problem? Why does it strike us as tragic? Why is death universally despised and, and so painful for the, for the dying and for the ones left behind? Why does death sting? The answer is simple. Because you and I and everyone else who has ever lived was not made to die. I'll say that again. You were not made for death. I, I hate it when I hear people say, death is natural. Death is just a part of life. It's not. Don't say that if you're a Christian. Because that is a gospel-denying lie. Death is the end of life. It's the great enemy that Christ defeated. Death is the opposite of life. And it's not natural either. It's supernatural. I'm going to repeat that so you can, you can hear it again. Death is not natural. It is supernatural. Because it is born out of a supernatural curse. And it was never intended to be part of this creation. In the beginning, God creates everything and He creates it good. God did not make Adam and Eve to die. He made them to live. But what happened? What did they do? Why did they fall? Why, why did they and everyone after them perish? If God did not make them to die, why do we die? Because they reached out in rebellion against God and were cursed and cursed unto death. To the woman, Genesis 3.16, He said... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forward for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
You ever seen older pictures? Older pictures of, of philosophers or, or the like, and you'll see them, and in the, in the painting, they have a, a skull in their hand, and they're looking at it. You seen that? Or maybe they've got a skull on their desk. You say, yeah, I've, I have seen that. It's kind of morbid. What's going on there? The reason they have a skull is to remind them that they will die. The reason they have a skull on their desk is as they're working, it reminds them, you will die. Solomon says the wise man contemplates his death. And there is a sense where all philosophy deals with death. Because there is something in us that knows death is not the way things were meant to be. That, 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 that says we weren't made to die. And it fills us with anguish because it's just not right. It's not natural. It's imposed by God supernaturally as punishment for sin. You wonder, that's why your cells eventually stop. It's not because they wear out, not ultimately because the sun knocks some of the DNA out of place. Your body has ways of dealing with that. The reason why people grow old and die is because God has ordained that those who sin against Him will perish. And death is the misery of all thinking men. One of the reasons why our culture is so carefree and cavalier about death is because they've stopped thinking. But if death is all there is, if death is all there is, why do you exist? What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of your life? If in the end it's blown away like dust and ashes, what matters? I mean, young people, you look up to your fathers, you admire them. They will die. And what will become of all of your admiration? And your spouse, your husband, your wife, you, you pour out affection on your spouse. But they will die. And what will have become of all of your affection? And parents, you love your children. You leave a way for your children. But one day they will die and you don't have any guarantee of not seeing it. And then what will become of all the preparations that you made? And you, what does it matter if you're strong? You will die in weakness. What, what does it matter if you're smart? You're really intelligent. Do you know what's going to happen? You are going to watch your brain crumble away. If you're rich, you're well off, you will die. And who will enjoy your labor then? This is why... Peter says, you were redeemed from the futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers. Because this really is futile. Right? Do you understand that the emptiness and the vanity of life? If death is all there is, even, even though the world denies it, and even though they ignore it, and even though they refuse to talk about it or think about it, we are still controlled by death. It's that powerful. Because the only two rational responses to this kind of futility, this kind of pointless existence, is either on the one hand, unrestrained hedonism. Right? Eat and drink and satisfy every lust that you have because tomorrow we die. I think of the Babylonians in, in Daniel, King Belshazzar. Enemies have surrounded the city. The, the, the Medes and the Persians have, have surrounded them. They're besieging the city. The end is near. What does he do? He gathers all of the nobles, all of the rich people in the city, brings them into the citadel, brings out the best of the, 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 the cups, the, ones that they, uh, the golden ones brought from the temple in Jerusalem, brings out the best of the wine, slaughters all of the animals, and throws a feast and says... Let us live today, for tomorrow we die. And it did die. Because that night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain when the Medes and the Persians poured into the city. But that's the one hand. Bring this life for as much pleasure as you can get. And it destroys people. And then on the other, you can think... And you can realize that even that is futile. 
and you can try to carry the weight brought about by death and be crushed by it to suicide. This life is all there is. Why endure? Why persevere? Why not, why not spite fate and end it all? To be or not to be, that is the question. You've heard this. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of trouble and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, and be no more. And by a sleep we say to end the heartache of a thousand natural shocks the flesh is heir to. Do you understand what Shakespeare was writing? He was writing about this. I don't know if tomorrow is going to be better than today. Today was bad. It looks like things are going to get worse. The only question I have to take seriously is whether to kill myself and spare myself. If death is all there is, death is all that there can be. And all of it because of sin and rebellion against God. And when that relationship with God, with that relationship with God we were made for was broken, everything that gave meaning to our life collapsed. Our existence was anchored in God. And when that line was cut by those first parents, we were sent adrift and lost at sea. We had a lifeline from heaven that was shattered in the garden. And apart from God and apart from Him, death is all that there is. But there's another way. And in that way, you can find mercy. In fact, even what we read in Genesis chapter 3, there is mercy. Even when God curses, He is merciful. And so what do you mean? Every time a woman is in pain from childbirth and things relating to it, it is God reminding her, you are fallen. You are fallen. Remember the promises that I made to a fallen people. And every time a man comes home from work and he is utterly defeated because of the futility of what he does, how many of you have felt this? It just doesn't seem to be getting any better. It just seems to be so pointless and hopeless. Do you know what God is doing? He is hemming you in so that you will look to the only bright spot in this creation, His Son. Every time when you're raising your children and you say, it just isn't working out the way it's supposed to be. Every time you're arguing with your husband or your wife and there's a fight happening, God is saying, you are fallen. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Look to me. Return to me. There is more than this. God doesn't even curse without blessing. When He's cursing the serpent, what does He tell him? He tells him that He is going to send the Messiah who will crush the head of the snake. And this is more than just retribution. This is a promise that one day God will restore all that was lost at the fall. Everything that fell down, God will raise up again. He will deliver His people once and for all, even though He has promised them. Even though He's promised Adam and Eve that they would die, that they deserve to die, He will undo death itself. And you say, did Adam and Eve really deserve to die? Every war, every mass shooting, every sickness and every pain and every evil that's ever happened in this world happened because they rebelled against God. You say, all that for one little sin? Against God, there are no little sins. I always use the example, if I were to, uh, I don't have a brother, but if I did, imagine I was wrestling with him and I, you know, I got real angry and I took a swing and I, I popped my brother in the nose. What's going to happen? Mom's going to come and say, hey, cut that out, boys. But imagine I do that to a stranger on the street. What's going to happen? Police are going to get called. Police are going to come. Now imagine the police officer gets there and I take a swing at him. I'm going to jail. I'm going to have my day in court. Imagine I have my day in court. I see the judge up on the bench. I'm angry. Why has that judge got me here? I get out of the seat, run over, go to take a swing at the judge. I'm going to jail for a long time. Imagine I get out. Queen, bless her heart, she's in town. She's coming through in her motorcade. I run to take a swing at the queen. You know what's going to happen? 
I'm going to get shot before I get there. The action was the same in every instance. The action, what I did was the same thing every single time. What changed? The authority, the preeminence of the one I was offending. Who is more preeminent? Who has more authority than God? This is why when Adam and Eve did what? Reached out and take hold of a fruit and eat it when God said no? That's why that sin was enough to plunge the whole of the universe and send the whole of creation groaning in pains of childbirth because they offended the glory and the authority and the majesty of the infinitely worthy God. And so what does God do? He pronounces judgment. He has to. He's God. But even in this judgment, He promises salvation. And afterward, Genesis 3.21, do you know what the first death in the Bible is? It's not Cain and Abel. God Himself slays an animal in Genesis 3.21 and covers the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve. The first blood shed in creation is shed by God Himself to show Adam and Eve mercy. They learned a lot in how God treated them because of their sin. He, closed, he says, on the day you eat of it, you will die. They don't die. They go on to live for another thousand years because God has made for them coverings and covered their sin by the shedding of blood. But after this, things don't get better, do they? After God shows mercy, you might expect thankfulness would compel people to act a little better, but that's not what happens. It gets worse, doesn't it? We say, how bad does it get? Cain and Abel. Sin didn't happen slowly over... You know, we think, well, maybe it's here and it just slowly gets worse. No, it, it, when they fell, they fell all the way to the bottom. Man fell from God and fell right into the realm of Satan. Cain. You know what the Bible says about Cain in John, 1 John 3.12? It says, Cain is of the evil one. Of him. Not just for him. Not, not captive to him. But of him. Belonging to him. Cain of the evil one. Defined by him. Empowered by him. You wonder what is a chief characteristic of Cain? You want to know who Cain is? He is of the evil one. And what does he do? You say he kills his brother. It's worse than that. When John says Cain killed Abel, he uses a word in the Greek that means to butcher. And in the ancient world, there were no butchers. You would go to the temple and you would sacrifice an animal. And then it would be butchered and taken to market. Animals were killed as offerings to God. Cain, in his hatred towards God, you can almost imagine him saying, God, you don't like my sacrifice? You like my brother's sacrifice better? You want a sac? I'll give you a sacrifice. And probably Cain sacrificed his brother. That's the picture that is being painted by John. And it's not a pretty picture. Cain is of the evil one. And Cain is not an isolated instance. Cain is what every one of us who were in the realm and held captive to and under the power of the sway and the sway of the evil one were. Cain is where... Cain lived where we lived. Not only were we fallen and not only in love with sin, but we hate and are hostile to God. It gets worse. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
It's God's testimony about our hearts. Sometimes people say, well, God knows what's in my heart. What a terrifying thought. God knows all of those things that you've thought that you wouldn't dare share with your closest friend. God knows what's in the heart. And he says, every intention of the heart is only evil all the time. You know what was happening in Genesis before the flood? Murder, primarily, from what we have in Scripture. People were killing one another, hunting one another for sport. Lamech wrote a song about it. He said, these two men offended me, sings to his wife, and I killed them both. Nobody's going to offend me again. The blood of the innocent was being shed all over. People were hunting one another for sport. Every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. You say, yeah, well, that was before the flood. God dealt with that. No. Genesis 8, 21, after the flood, God makes a covenant of preservation with Noah. And he says, even though people are so evil, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though the intentions of his heart is evil from his youth. Can you read that story? And it's amazing, isn't it? All that water could not wash away sin. All that water could not make people clean. It couldn't even put fear into those who were saved from it. Because Noah, you remember what he does when he gets off of the ark? He gets drunk. And then there's a the perversion of his son Ham. And then the Tower of Babel. And then in chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is our heritage. This is what we inherit in the world. Sin and death and hatred to God. Jesus' own testimony is that we hated God because God is light and we are evil, if you want to know why. Genesis 3, 19 through 20. Or John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. But people loved darkness rather than the light. And the reason they love darkness rather than light is because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. Those letters are written in red in your Bibles. And it's God Himself, Jesus, saying that you want to know what people are like? Turn over a rock and you see all of those insects that hate the light and scurry away so that they're not exposed. That's the nature of man. Sinful, evil, light-hating, murderers of God. And so we're left with the question. How can a holy, righteous God be kind and show love towards an evil, sinful people? How can God, who is perfectly just, be merciful to us who are perfectly wicked? It's not an easy task. God is just, and because He is just, He must punish sin. I mean, you probably saw in the news the other day, just, just this last week, Supreme Court of Canada said, uh, life without parole is too much for a mass murderer. Far too much. So the man who killed the police officers in, in Moncton should have his parole hearing coming up in the next couple of years. Or you might have heard about a doctor in Quebec a couple of years ago, murdered all of his children, uh, three of them, drowned them, and the court said, it's okay, he was under a lot of stress, and they gave him a year of probation. Or uh, recently in the States, a man who was high as could be, uh, on mushrooms, took a, a broom handle and beat one of his professors, crushed her hands, crushed her arms, crushed her face. When his day in jail came, oh, he was, he's not responsible for it. He, he was high. We'll let him go. What do you think of judges like that? Is that just? You know it's not just. In fact, you get angry because you know it's not just. You get angry because you know that is not right. That is not justice. Any judge who is going to be just must punish sin. 
must deal with evil. Do you see the problem now? We've just spent the last however long seeing that we ourselves are evil. What would you think of a God who just took all of your sin and swept it under the rug and let you go free? So we were singing about God has redeemed sinful people. How? How can God do this? How can God forgive us and not be like one of those unjust judges? Romans 3 tells us how God can save a sinful, evil, death-deserving people like you and me. How can a God who is perfectly just forgive the sins of man? How can He be just and declare His people righteous? How can He be just and not deal with our sin? You think about this. Satan fell. From what little information we have in the Bible, Satan fell. And when he did, he encountered perfect justice. And everybody in heaven, the angels, they looked and they said, God has done what is right. Imagine how it shook the heavens when Adam and Eve, though met with justice, found a promise of redemption. This troubled heaven. If there were such a thing as angel philosophers, this is the question that troubled them from the time of creation to the cross. How can God be just and forgive wicked people? If, if He did to this angel, one of us, when He fell, if He did this to him, how can He forgive sinful men? This is why Peter says, angels look on with wonder at these things. Where is God's justice? When the angels sinned and were cast down, nobody in heaven batted an eye. They got what they deserved. Justice was served. No problem. When Adam and Eve sinned and they did not die on the day that they ate of it, heaven was appalled. How can God justify unrighteous men? This is, by the way, the question of the gospel. It's not primarily about me and my need of salvation. It is about God and His justice being satisfied. How can God justify unrighteous people? You think of Adam? Adam should have died. That second died and thrown into hell without a promise. That would have been right. I mean, he defied God and condemned billions. And yet God calls him, My son, God, where is your justice? Or Noah. Noah should have died with all of the rest. But God calls him righteous. You think a drunken man is righteous when he gets out of the ark after having been delivered? Where is your justice, God? Or Abraham, a friend of God. He doubts God and, and puts his wife into danger, lies about his wife to save himself. God, where is your justice? Or David. David, the, the hothead who almost who, who gets angry because Nabal doesn't give him what he wants and goes to kill him. Or David who lies to the priests and gets them all killed. Or David who is an adulterer and to cover it up murders the wife's husband. God, you call him a man after your own heart? God, you call him your son? Where is your justice, God? Or us who sin every day. And we hold up our hands and say, Lord, thank you, God, that you have redeemed us from the curse. Is it not right for the angels in heaven and Satan to come and say, God, where is your justice? Do you get it? You see the problem? We are evil and we deserve to die. And not just in 80 years. But every one of us right now ought to drop down through the floor into hell this very second. And the only thing that could be said is that the judge of all the earth has done what is right. But we're not going to do that, are we? We sing songs and rejoice. Right? We're going to go. We're going to be with Him. We're going to see Him face to face. Right? That a sinner like me will stand in front of Him and not be destroyed? Why? How can God save a sinful, rebellious, fallen people while at the same time maintaining justice? Is it because the justice of God is diminished? 
Right? Is he forsaken righteousness? Proverbs 17, 15, He who condemns, who justifies the wicked and who condemns the innocent, both of them alike are an abomination to God. How can God forgive us and not become an abomination to himself? 2,000 years ago, he sent his son and the answer was given. The answer in the heavens. You want to know? Do you want to know how I can call Adam and Eve my children? You want to know why he can call Noah righteous and Abraham his friend and David his son, a man after his own heart? You want to know why he can look at you and all of your sins and say, forgiven, clean, righteous in my sight? Because there on the cross, Christ bore the sins and the curse of his people and all of God's wrath that should have fell on me and on you fell on Him until justice was satisfied and satisfied forever. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart. What righteousness? God, how can you be righteous and forgive sinful men? It's been manifest apart from the law, although the prophets bore witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. When you put your faith in Christ, you are declared righteous. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. Do you know what that word propitiation means? It's a very old word. It means to appease or to turn away wrath. When Christ was on the cross, He was your propitiation. And all of the righteous anger of God against sin fell upon Him. This is why He says, we have been saved from the wrath of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Received by faith. This, verse 25, this was to show, or in other words, to demonstrate God's righteousness. You say, why does God have to demonstrate His righteousness? This is what this is about. God has to demonstrate His righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. This is exactly what we've been talking about. God, how can you pass over all of these sins? You are supposed to be righteous. He demonstrated that He was righteous and that all of those past sins, they weren't swept under the rug. They were piled up, put into the cup, and drank down by Christ. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Sometimes you'll hear people say, God could have been just with you, but He was merciful. That's not right. God is not either just or merciful as if his mercy, mercy is devoid of justice. God made a way for his mercy to be just so that he can forgive you of your sins, not sweeping them away, not putting them behind his back, paying for them in full so that every accusation against you is answered. At the cross, God proves Himself both merciful and just in perfect harmony so that now if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just not to condemn, but to forgive us of these sins and purify us from all unrighteousness because of Christ. We had two great problems. Sin and death. We were under the power of sin and under the penalty of sin. And God, in His justice, could not redeem us. Christ solves both of those things. He saves us from death by drinking down for us the penalty of sin. And His righteousness, God's righteousness, is vindicated in Him. 
we couldn't have been any lower. He redeemed our life from the pit. He satisfies us with mercy. He cares for His people. We were low. And God raised us so high we could not be raised any higher than we have been in Jesus Christ. And it's all because of Him. You want a motivation to lay down your life? You want a motivation to die to yourself so that you can live for Him? Look at the cross. You're still under the power of sin and terrified of the penalty of death? Run to Christ. If you're here this morning and say, I, I don't know Him. Run to Him. So I don't have any strength. Then take hold of Him. My grip's too weak. Then fall on Him. Trust in Him and trust in His Word. Don't, don't wait to get yourself clean. If all the water in the flood couldn't make any uh, wash away the sins of man, you can't make yourself clean either. But He can. And Christ will have you. And when He takes you, He will make you clean. You can't do it. He can. So you go to Him, and you go to Him believing. You go to Him by faith, confessing, Lord, everything You say of me is true. I have no strength in myself. I am weak and sinful and evil. But You, God, are merciful and ready to forgive. And you go to Him believing that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord, we have no righteousness of which to speak. We have all, like sheep, gone astray, everyone to his own way. And Lord, you laid on him the iniquities of us all. Lord, we cannot make ourselves clean. But you can. We cannot wash away a single sin. You can wash away them all. Lord, we are sinful and deserved to die. Lord, You have delivered us from the power and the penalty of sin and of death. And that controlling fear and dreadful slavery, Lord, the chains of it have broken and life has been given. God, we cannot die anymore. You said those who believe in Me will not die perish, pass from life to life. The sting of death has been removed for all of those who trust in You. And so, Lord, I pray that we would love You all the more, that we would see, Lord, the stars of Your mercy shining against the blackness of our souls, that they would not be hidden from us by thinking there's so much light in us. But we would see, Lord, that we were dead in trespasses and sins and made alive in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to know how dead and how, under, how, how enslaved we were. Lord, not... Lord, for no other reason than that we would love what You have done more. Thank You, Father. Thank You for Your Son. Thank You for Your Spirit. In these three, we... Give thanks. We pray, Lord. All dominion and glory and honor be unto You. In Jesus' name, Amen.